All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Lord, we just continue to come to you, Father, and, and look to you as, as our source of life. And, uh, Father, I uh, pray that you would, you would be actively opening our eyes to see your beauty. Lord, as we talked in, in Sunday school about um, heaven being a place that's full of the knowledge of your glory as waters cover the sea. Father, I pray that, that we would have a little taste of heaven here. Lord, that you would impart to us um, knowledge. or that we would have eyes to see your beauty. Lord, that we would be um, filled, Lord, moved. Um, Lord, to, to love you more and to be more wrapped up in all that you are and the good gift that you gave us and all the good gifts that you give us. Lord, even in a year of, of 2020, um, Lord, the, the, the testimonies here this morning of, of uh, people coming through cancer and, and being able to be with family. And um, Lord, I just, I'm grateful, uh, Father, that you are a God who is at work um, even in the midst of chaos, of irregularities. Father, I pray that uh, you would just help us, Lord, to see who you are and that we would marvel. I ask that you would use your word to accomplish this this morning. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse, 20, verse 43, through the end of the chapter. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For his son rises on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're actually coming to the end of this section. It began with, Jesus saying he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And in that state, in that paragraph, he says that if you are to enter the kingdom of heaven, then your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so he gives us six examples, six examples of this exceeding righteousness this true righteousness. And I've argued that righteousness is the explicit theme of the Sermon on the Mount. But you probably noticed in the passage that I just read that love was the topic of Jesus' example this morning. Love is the undercurrent upon which righteousness flows. We can see love under nearly all the sayings that Jesus has given us this far. And I plan to point those out in just a moment. But first, 
Let me give you a little bit of structure. Jesus is trying to show us what true righteousness looks like. Just because you don't murder somebody doesn't mean you're good. Doesn't mean you have the righteousness that is required to enter into heaven. The vast majority of times, if you ask somebody where they're going to go when they die, if you come to them and say, if I were, if you were to stand before the pearly gates and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Most people will say, because I haven't murdered anybody. I'm a pretty good person. But Jesus here teaches us, his first example was that not murdering somebody is not a standard of righteousness. Because you cannot murder someone and still have hate in your heart. So if you treat somebody with, with disdain, if you speak harsh words to another, then you are guilty. You demonstrate your unrighteous heart. Just because you don't commit adultery, just because you divorce legally, doesn't mean you are righteous. If you fantasize about another person or reduce them to an object for your pleasure, you are guilty. True righteousness takes sin seriously. Real righteousness doesn't make excuses for our wandering hearts. Jesus is teaching us that righteousness is a matter of the heart. God cares about who we are on the inside. He's not fooled by what we do on the outside. He cares about the inner person. He cares who we are, about who we are on the inside, not what we show to others. Jesus tells us that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. That's how he begins this section. And how does he end it? You must be perfect. You must be perfect. He doesn't say you need to try to be perfect. He says you must be perfect. It is a gut-wrenching and humiliating experience when you come to the realization that your righteousness is not any greater than those whom you deem the least righteous. And that's what Jesus does to the Pharisees with these examples. He shows them, you think you're righteous because you can hair split the laws and, and show how good you are based on the law of Moses. But inside, you're just as unrighteous as the person you deem least righteous in your culture. You, you love your family? Good. Most people do. In fact, even tax collectors do. The people you despise, the people who have betrayed you, love the people that love them.
We can't miss that. We can't excuse ourselves. We make excuses for us and we hold other people to a higher standard. Jesus turns the tides on the Pharisees, on those who believe they're good enough. On those who believe, yeah, I'm, I may struggle in these other areas, but I'm not like them. The kind of righteousness that is required to enter heaven is an all-pervasive righteousness. It's a kind of righteousness that affects every aspect of your life. You don't do righteousness when it's easy and then excuse it when it's hard. It spreads throughout your entire person. It fills you up and you overflow with righteousness. That's what the light is. When he says, let your light shine before men, it's the righteousness that God has instilled in you. It's not this look good Christianity that only affects your behavior and your words. Doing the right thing and saying the right thing, all the while your heart remains trapped in selfishness and fear. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, who does that? Who stands there being tortured and prays for the ones who's torturing them? I mean, I mean we don't condemn those who disengage their enemies. Right? We, it's understanding. Yeah, I mean, they treated you really bad just in that relationship. I mean, we, we, we praise them. We say, man, you did the right thing. Good job not saying what you wanted to say. Good job not retaliating. Man, they, man, they just, man if I had been there, if I weren't a Christian, boy, I would have. Jesus says, no. No, that is not the kind of righteousness that he is talking about. That is not the kind of righteousness Jesus requires. True righteousness responds to poor treatment with love. True righteousness loves those who are persecuting it. True righteousness loves always, all the time, never ending. There's never a point where righteousness is not expressed through love. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. To enter into the kingdom of God, you have to be his children. He doesn't let anyone else in. You want to get into his house? You've got to be his child. That means you must act like he acts. 
You must love the things he loves. This acting isn't pretend. It's not a performance. It's not an impersonation of God. It's truth. It's honest. It's real because it comes from one who's been born again. It's not someone who goes onto a stage and puts a mask over themselves to be a certain person at a certain time, saying the right things, doing the right things, and the right moments at the right time, and then later you walk away and you can take the mask off and you're somebody different. It's real because it comes from someone who's been born again. That's what it means. You've been born of God. You've been born of the Spirit of God. You are new. God's children love what he loves. They do what God does. And God loves those who don't love him. So God's children love those who don't love them in return. God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God makes it rain on the farmer's field who loves God, who's devoted to God. And he also makes it rain on his neighbor's ground who curses God, despises God, rebels against God. God gives them both the good gift. God's children love because God loves. And God is perfect. God is perfect and so must we be. This is the concluding statement. The concluding statement in this series of examples that Jesus is giving us to try to show us what it means to truly be righteous. Not try to be perfect. You know, that's what we do sometimes. We, we read something from Jesus and we say, surely he couldn't have meant it that way. I mean, for real? Jesus, you, you command me to be perfect? I mean, come on. That's just not fair. Does God require something of us as his children, as followers of Jesus, that we cannot attain? I mean, no fooling around, no messing around. We're not playing theological twister here. Is Jesus telling us we have to be perfect to be God's children? Yes. Yes, he is. He is telling us we have to be perfect. And no, God does not require something of us that we cannot attain. I mean, what kind of God do we serve? A jerk? A God who baits us, who taunts us? 
You have to be this, but I know you can never be it, so too bad. You're thinking, Ryan, where are you going with this? We all know we can't be perfect. You're right. You're going to come to my house today and you're going to see how very imperfect I am. So what does Jesus mean when he says perfect? We throw that word around all the time. I used to make fun of Kara for it. She'd say, oh, that's perfect. Is it? Is it really? I mean, I can think of ways it could be better. When we think of the word perfect, we think it can't be improved upon. We think of moral perfection. You and I can be perfect as we follow God, as we love Jesus, but it's not the kind of perfect you think of. It is not moral perfection. Jesus uses the word perfect and he swaps it out from an Old Testament passage. You, therefore, will be holy. You, you therefore, must be holy as I am holy. That's what Jesus said in the Old Testament in the Law of Moses. But if Jesus had said that, holiness in, in Jesus' day among the Jews, among the scribes and the Pharisees, the people he was talking to, well, they had that all figured out. That was just a regular old, I mean, that's like inviting Jesus into your heart. We just, yeah, I've done that, I'm good. Jesus changes the language to show them that they've missed it. When Jesus says perfect, he means whole, complete, true, full, perfect. The word here is teleos. And perfect is really not the best translation. Probably the best translation might be complete or whole. And maybe a good way to understand this meaning is to think of it as something completing its purpose. It was made for a specific purpose and it's fulfilled that purpose. It's perfect. Now, it says that our Heavenly Father is to be perfect, so obviously that understanding falls short in some regard. But it does communicate the idea of wholeness, completeness, being at peace, being at rest. Jesus is trying to teach his audience and us what true righteousness is. The people he was talking to had books of the Bible memorized. They knew God's word. They understood it. They practiced it. They lived it. They breathed it. They ate it. And so Jesus comes to them. And instead of saying, you must be holy as your father is holy, he says, you must be whole as your father is whole. You must be complete as your father is complete. You must be perfect as your father 
is perfect. For them, holiness was just outward obedience. Jesus is trying to get rid of their religiosity. Obedience to rules did not create the spirit that Jesus requires of those who follow him. God is just not interested in our hair-splitting, sophisticated religion. He's not interested in our nice clothes. He's not interested in how pretty we can sing. He's not interested in the amount of money we put in the offering plate. He's not interested in how many times we come to church. He wants our hearts. He wants us. Stubborn and fickle as my heart is, God wants it. He wants me. And he wants to make me whole. He wants to make me complete. He wants to make me full. He wants to see me flourish. He wants me to be perfect. There's an element of purity here. I would be doing you a disservice if I did not at least speak of it briefly. The idea of perfection here is the idea of something being pure. Something being completely pure. There'd be no infirmities in it whatsoever. God wants wholehearted, single-minded, passionate devotion to him. He doesn't want one thing on the outside while there's another thing on the inside. He wants purity, completely whole. An illustration here I think can be beneficial is that of Pascal's Wager. don't know if you've ever heard of it. And it's full form. It's, it's very good. But in our simplistic uh, five-second attention span, we've reduced it down, and actually um, it can be uh, very problematic. Pascal's Wager is you know, you, excuse me, you don't know if God exists. Nobody knows if God exists. We believe that God exists. So you don't know if God is really there. God is not a reality to you. He's only a possibility. When you look at nature or the the gospel story of Christ crucified and risen, you don't see divine glory that is convincing and beautiful to you. But the wager says, you've got to decide. You've got to decide to either follow Christ and believe in God or to not. And the wager says, choose Christ. Because if you do, and it's not true, you have nothing to lose. But if it it is true, and you don't choose, there's everything to lose. It's pretty logical. You have nothing to lose to follow Jesus. But for the person who doesn't really believe... They're just basing this off of a wager. 
the choice is not owing to really seeing the beauty of God, being really captured by the story of the crucified and risen Christ. It's just on the off chance that God is real, I'm going to believe. Do you think that's the kind of belief God wants? Do you think we can fool God and say, okay, I believe you on the off chance you're real, but I actually believe it. I'm going to act like I do. I'm going to go through the motions. I'm going to say the words. I'm going to do what I need to do on the off chance that it's true because there's nothing to lose. We can't fool God. We cannot fool God that we are righteous on the outside while on the inside we remain unchanged, no passion, no love, no desire for him. Jesus says true righteousness is a whole person behavior. It doesn't just engage your actions, it engages your hearts. It's honest behavior, true behavior. And it lines up with God's nature. Why? Because Christians are the children of God. We've been born of God. We line up with who God is. We want the things that God wants. And we look forward to God fulfilling his promises. That is the true righteousness that Jesus just set before us in these six examples. There's no fooling God. He can see right through our best performance. Doesn't matter how many nice clothes we put on, he still knows if we stink. It's dangerous. But to bring it home, in a sense, God telling us to be perfect, Jesus Christ saying you must be perfect. in a way, is like saying, you've got to be you. You've got to be the true you. No performances, no faking it, no pretending, no hiding, no shame, no guilt. You be you. You know what happens when people do that? One of two things. They either become free and they recognize that God has changed their heart and they're a new creation. Or they run off the rails and they say, I can do whatever I want. If you are a true child of God, when you are true to the you that God has created you to be, then the righteousness flows out of you. God created his children good. 
God made them righteous. God made them loving. God created them with virtue. And God wants nothing less than us. Your heart, all of it, no reservations. That's what it means to be perfect. It means to be free. It means to be honest. And if God has taken a sinner and transformed them into a saint, then that is perfection. That is perfection. Let's close. Dear Father, I do thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you came to do a mighty, mighty work in us. You didn't just come to give us rules to, that we can obey and, and, and try to get in. You came to transform our very being. You came to take my heart so that it, and make it to where I wouldn't be fickle. So that I wouldn't wander. Lord, you came and you make us new. Father, I pray that we would glory in that, that we would revel in it. Lord, I pray that the righteousness that you give us would pervade through every aspect of our lives. It would affect our will, our emotions. It would affect our words and our deeds. That we would, there would be nothing left untouched by your grace within us. Father, I ask that you would do this, Lord, for our good, but a good that brings glory to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.